You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Well, it's another bonus episode. Thanks for joining me. The Patreon subscribers submitted topic suggestions for this episode, and you guys voted for your favorites. We tackled Marx's 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte last episode with Matt Christman. This time, we'll be going over another one of the topics you chose, the transition to capitalism. So, let's get into it. I think there's a tendency out there to assume capitalism is kind of the natural form of economic organization that this was always how societies organized their economies, and that it wasn't until recent history that alternatives emerged, like mixed social market systems, anarchism, communism, or fascist corporatism. But this isn't really true. Human beings have a natural impulse to assume the way we live is the default state of things, and that anything else is either an innovation or an aberration. But the historical record shows the origins of capitalism were in the medieval period and the Renaissance, and it didn't really coalesce and become a major force in Western society until the 18th century. Before going any further, we should probably define what capitalism actually is. To put it as simply as I can, it's a system in which economic decisions are made by individual private business owners and financiers. Capitalist governments create legislation and regulations that facilitate private investors' freedom of action, policies like strong protections on private property and free trade. I think it's important to point out that this is not the same thing as commerce. I feel like sometimes the two concepts get conflated. Commerce just means people exchanging goods with each other. It really has been going on since the dawn of time, and it occurs under every kind of economic system, not just capitalism. Most historians place the beginning of modern capitalism in medieval northern Italy. This world-changing concept had its origins in some of the most boring stuff imaginable, new accounting methods. The wealth of the northern Italian family banking firms helped finance the splendor of the Renaissance. Famous names like Medici and Borgia rose to prominence in large part on the power of finance. As I mentioned in episode 3, with the discovery of the Americas and an increase in maritime trade with Africa and Asia, the Atlantic began to replace the Mediterranean as the most important venue of international trade. The economic action in Europe began to shift north and west, away from Italy. German banking families like the Velsers and the unfortunately named Fuggers overtook the older Italian firms in the 1500s. 
and in the 1600s, they in turn were supplanted by the Dutch, and increasingly the English. The Dutch East India Company, founded in 1602, was the first modern joint stock company, making Amsterdam's stock market the oldest in the world. The London Stock Exchange began very humbly in the late 1600s, in a place called Jonathan's Coffee House. So by the 1700s, capitalism had been slowly developing on the ground for centuries. But it wasn't until the Enlightenment that writers and philosophers started thinking about it systematically and trying to gather it all together in a theoretical framework. Think back to some of the discussions of the Enlightenment from earlier episodes. That's what people were doing in the 18th century, systematizing, categorizing, trying to express universal laws of how things work. People took that ethos to science, politics, anthropology, and most importantly, for the purposes of this discussion, commerce. I actually talked about these early Enlightenment economists a bit in episode 5.5. They actually invented the term economist, which is what they called their movement, but obviously that's a bit confusing, so historians usually refer to them as the physiocrats. The physiocrats were all French, which might be surprising because France lagged behind Britain and the Netherlands in the development of capitalism. But that's precisely what motivated the physiocrats to think about this stuff and write it down. The physiocrats could see that this was the future, and France was falling behind. Clearly, the English and Dutch had something France didn't, but what was it? None of the existing intellectual frameworks for analyzing politics and society provided satisfactory answers. So the physiocrats came up with a new one, and the discipline of economics was born. Some elements of physiocratic thought look pretty bizarre through modern eyes. They were taking a step into the future, but they still had one foot in the past, when people believed economic outcomes were driven by morality or even theology. But they made a case for free trade and free markets that doesn't look totally unfamiliar to anyone who knows modern capitalist economic thought. The physiocrats are important because they broke new intellectual ground, but... Let me put it this way, how many people today have heard of physiocracy? Are there many physiocratic political parties or thinkers in the world today? Their ideas have not stood the test of time. But the physiocrats had a lot of influence on the thinking of a young Scottish student who went on to refine and improve on their theories, Adam Smith. Smith published his most influential work in 1776, An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. I tend to think a lot of people get Smith wrong, including both critics and supporters. Today, you often see him painted as some free-market fundamentalist, kind of an 18th-century libertarian, which is not really accurate. For starters, Smith was a much more interesting thinker than that, but more importantly, it's anachronistic to think of him as representing any modern school of political or economic thought. He was very much a man of the 18th century. But that's a topic for another podcast. What's important to this discussion is that Smith's Wealth of Nations was the first fully realized expression of an ideology we can recognize as modern capitalism. I always think it's interesting to point out that Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto was published in 1848, only 72 years after the Wealth of Nations. So if capitalism was a new idea in the 1700s, what preceded it? You often see the pre-capitalist economies of Europe labeled mercantilist, but some historians are moving away from that term. 
Giving a handy label to early modern economic policies implies that there was some unified school of thought followed by European governments, and that's not really the case. People just didn't have a concept of economics the way we do. They didn't have the intellectual tools to look at production, labor, and commerce as a distinct area of human endeavor. The economy was looked at more as an extension of politics and society rather than its own sphere. The result was that, just like everything else in society, the right to engage in commerce was often a privilege to be doled out by rulers as a reward for service or loyalty. It was very common for individuals or groups to be granted a monopoly over some good or service within a certain area. Other monopolies were held by the central government as a way of raising revenue. In Frederick the Great's Prussia, for example, the royal government was the only legal vendor for coffee. Over the border in the Netherlands, coffee was traded freely and was cheap due to Dutch colonialism in Asia, so smuggling boomed. The coffee monopoly was a massively important part of the state budget, so Frederick's government hired a huge number of inspectors to ferret out black marketeers. Prussia didn't have a military pension system, so these inspector jobs often went to wounded veterans too disabled to find other work, an old soldier hobbling through the streets with a cane or a peg leg sniffing for illicit coffee roasting was a common sight in 18th century Prussia. International trade was highly restricted as well. Today, it's conventional wisdom that trade between two countries usually ultimately enriches both. That wasn't the case for most of human history. Most political leaders in the 18th century were essentially hoarders when it came to trade policy. It was commonly believed it was against the national interest to let too many valuable products out of the country. Authorities were very skeptical of international trade. They kept it under tight control, only permitting it to obtain hard-to-find goods and to appease the merchant class. International merchants often required a special license from both the point of departure and final destination. These licenses were typically expensive and limited in number. Trade was even more tightly restricted in European colonies. Typically, international commerce was banned from colonial ports. Only merchants from the mother country were permitted to trade with the colonies. These colonies had been founded to enrich the colonizing power. It was believed that allowing them to do business with rival powers undermined that mission. These restrictions were incredibly unpopular in the colonies. Freedom of trade would be a rallying cry for all of the revolutions against European authority that took place in the New World, everywhere from Boston to Buenos Aires. Free trade also became a major political issue in Europe around this time, but mostly among the middle classes, the people whose livelihoods were most closely tied to commerce. Free trade became part of a broader political program favored by most of the bourgeoisie, along with policies like political and civil rights, constitutionalism, meritocracy, and equality before the law. Taken together, these ideas grew into the political ideology we call liberalism. There are idealistic and intellectual sides to liberalism as well, elements that appeal to the heart and the mind rather than the pocketbook. But the material interests of the middle classes have been a fundamental part of liberal ideology from the very beginning, which is why the development of liberalism went hand-in-hand with the development of capitalism. In our world today, capitalists are in power almost everywhere. Liberalism, in the broadest possible sense of the term, is the ruling ideology of almost every country on earth. We reflexively think of liberal capitalism as the face of the establishment, but that wasn't so in the 18th century. 
At the time of the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars, they were still the underdogs, the insurgency, a challenge to the existing order. Sure, changes in the economy meant that the commercial middle classes had more money and power than ever before, but almost everywhere the landed aristocracy was still on top, both socially and politically. I think that's one of the most important broad narratives to keep in mind when you're talking about modern and early modern European history. That long, slow process by which the businessman supplanted the feudal lord, by which aristocratic values faded away and bourgeois values came to dominate society. That's basically where we are in the time period covered by this podcast, the very beginning of that transformation the era in which liberals and bourgeois capitalists attained the power and self-confidence necessary to challenge the old order. That discussion of capitalism actually dovetails well with the next topic, slavery and blackness in France. I should probably start this one out with a little bit of a disclaimer. In the next few minutes, we're going to be touching on issues that are obviously still pretty fraught in our own societies today. The history of black people in Europe and the Americas during the 18th century is, to put it bluntly, very ugly. That's not to say there was any uniform experience universal to all black people. Some black Europeans and Americans were able to carve out a comfortable existence for themselves. Some of them even thrived. But most black people living in white-dominated societies were subjected to violence, cruelty, and dehumanization. I'm going to be discussing that stuff as frankly as I can. I think it's important we try to understand how something so horrible could come to pass, particularly since we are still dealing with it today. That means exploring the ideas and motivations of the perpetrators, as well as the victims. But in doing so, we should never make excuses for any of the crimes of slavery and colonialism. I should also say that this is a huge topic that touches on a lot of different disciplines. History, of course, but also anthropology, sociology, even economics, and obviously black and African studies. I'll be looking at it from an historical perspective and trying to do it justice in just a few minutes. This is a brief introduction and a few of my thoughts. You definitely shouldn't look at it as the exhaustive account or the only valid perspective. With all that said, I think we should start by defining the concept of race. Race is the idea that human beings are divided into subspecies that are rigid, distinct from one another, and correspond closely not only to physical traits, but to character and intelligence as well. An important part of the concept is the idea that racial distinctions are eternal and immutable, an inherent part of human biology that has been with us forever. The key to understanding race in the 18th century is wrapping your head around the fact that this idea just really isn't true. It doesn't really accurately describe human beings, and there's certainly nothing eternal or immutable about it. The concept of race is best understood as an ideology or a belief system rather than an empirical fact. Like all ideologies, it came about at a specific time and place due to specific local conditions, and has changed through its history. Race as we know it was born out of European colonialism. By the time of the French Revolution, it was barely out of its infancy. The reason this dovetails so well with the last topic is the idea of race came about alongside capitalism. It was created by a lot of the same conditions and fed by a lot of the same trends. Before the Age of Discovery, 
European societies didn't really need complicated conceptual frameworks to manage their interactions with non-European peoples. There simply weren't very many of those interactions, and in the rare cases they did happen, almost all Western Europeans were Catholics, and most foreigners they encountered were Muslims. It was easy to make sense of those interactions with a us-and-them dynamic from religion. But at the dawn of the modern age, the Reformation broke that religious unity among Western Europeans, while at the same time, increased international trade and colonization brought Europeans into more frequent contact with a more diverse array of non-European peoples. So that old Christendom versus Islam narrative didn't really ring true anymore. So Europeans needed a new way to conceptualize their relations with the wider world, something that would be applicable on any of the new frontiers of European colonialism, from the Spice Islands of Indonesia to the jungles of Central America. A new us-versus-them dynamic, something that could bind all Europeans together despite diverse national and religious backgrounds. The concept of race meets all those criteria. It probably goes without saying that Europeans quickly ascribed positive qualities to whiteness and negative qualities to non-white people. Obviously, some of this was just people's natural desire to believe flattering things about themselves, but it also tied in with colonialism. Colonialism was an ugly process. It involved doing terrible, inhumane things to the colonized peoples. Creating negative racial stereotypes about non-whites made that easier to stomach. Most people find it psychologically difficult to abuse or kill a fellow human being who has done them no wrong. It becomes easier when that fellow human being has been dehumanized and cast as an enemy in some ideological narrative. There's a tendency today to think of these prejudiced ideas of race as ancient, maybe even prehistoric a throwback to some primitive, tribal past. That's not really accurate. In the 18th century, race was a modern, cutting-edge concept. You might even call it trendy. It's something that developed among the wealthy, educated elite, and people working in the most exciting growth industry of the age. It then spread outward to the rest of society, not some vestigial animal instinct that rose up from the backwards corners of Europe. We tend to only talk about the Enlightenment in positive terms, but many 18th century people saw absolutely no contradiction between progressive enlightened values and prejudiced violent racial attitudes. In fact, the Enlightenment was a huge influence on the emerging concept of race. 18th century philosophers loved to categorize things. They wanted to define every facet of existence down to its essential elements and fit everything together into a rational taxonomy of human existence. Think of Diderot's Encyclopedia, considered one of the greatest expressions of Enlightenment thought, a volume of books that would contain an objective definition of everything on Earth. This impulse to catalog everything is admirable when it comes to categorizing types of plants or insects or terrain features, but human beings are too complex to be pigeonholed so easily, particularly with the rudimentary methods available to 18th century Europeans. Much Enlightenment writing on race is pure pseudoscience, built on nothing but secondhand anecdotes and urban legends. Most Enlightenment thinkers who delved into racial theories thought that what they were doing was perfectly innocent. 
their fetishization of pure rationality and unexamined faith in their own objectivity blinded them to the monstrous moral implications of their work. So the concept of race was evolving all over Europe, fueled by interactions between Europeans and non-Europeans all over the world. But you guys asked me specifically about blackness and slavery in 18th century France. The life of almost every black person in France during this era was shaped by the system of plantation slavery on France's Caribbean colonies. Almost every black person anywhere in France or her colonies could trace their origins to the Caribbean within a few generations. That's where most French social mores around race evolved, and where you can see the first stirrings of a black francophone identity. Fiction set in Europe during this era usually depicts it as lily-white, but that wasn't the reality. Black communities were a feature of life in 18th century European port towns and major cities. None of these approached the size of the immigrant communities that developed in the late 20th century, we are talking about a few thousand people at most, but enough to be visible. On the eve of the French Revolution, the average resident of London, Bordeaux, or Amsterdam wouldn't have thought twice about passing a black face in the street. It was a different story in the French West Indies. Sugar was the booming commodity of the 18th century. Most of the entire world's supply came from just a few small islands in the Caribbean. This was the era when candies, pastries, rum, and sweetened coffee or tea became common parts of the Western diet. There was a huge demand for sugar to be met, and a massive amount of money to be made. But sugar production was challenging. There just isn't very much square acreage on Earth that's suitable for large-scale sugarcane production, and most of it is thousands of miles away from Europe, in hot, wet climates that are hard to work in and breeding grounds for disease. Not only was sugar production physically grueling, it was dangerous. You need a big, sword-like machete to harvest sugarcane. Easy to imagine how accidents could happen with dozens or even hundreds of workers swinging them around at harvest time. Cane fields are an ideal environment for all kinds of spiders, insects, and snakes, some of which are deadly dangerous, and none of which take kindly to being disturbed. Once the crop was harvested, Processing it into sugar and molasses brought its own dangers. The processing equipment was notorious for mangling limbs and scalding skin. And of course, sugar plantations were breeding grounds for disease, particularly yellow fever, which was untreatable in the 18th century and could kill as many as 50% of those infected. Working on a sugar plantation was a slow, lingering death sentence. No one would sign up for this out of their own free will. But Europeans were wild for their cakes, rums, candies, and sweet, creamy café au lait. How can you meet that demand and turn a profit when no one on earth wants to work on a sugar plantation? As I'm sure most of you have probably guessed, the only solution they could come up with was to force people to do it. And that's how the transatlantic slave trade was born. As we've established, sugar production was horrific work. The only thing that kept these slaves going was a system of organized brutality that made them more afraid of idleness than they were of the hazards of work. It's repugnant to try to think of this from a business perspective, but try if you can. The owners and operators of the plantations had already crossed the Rubicon of brutalizing their black slaves, 
due to the deplorable conditions of plantation life, the average slave would be dead within a few years. Under those conditions, what incentive did owners and overseers have to treat their slaves well? Why not just torture every ounce of effort out of them before they catch yellow fever and die, or lose an arm to a machine? Sugar plantations were immensely profitable, and there was no shortage of slaves. Anyone who died of exhaustion or was whipped to death for some infraction could be easily replaced. And the more white sugar planters brutalized their slaves, the larger one fact loomed. There were a lot more of the oppressed than there were of the oppressors. Europeans looking to start a new life in the colonies wanted to go places like New England or Canada, environments that were similar to Europe with no scary tropical diseases. Yellow fever didn't discriminate. So most of the sugar islands were around 90% black, the vast majority of whom were slaves. With that anxiety of being outnumbered in the back of their minds, many white colonists in the Caribbean resorted to terror to keep the slaves in line. Idleness was punished with cruelty, but even a rumor of insubordination or rebellion usually meant some kind of slow, exotic torture to the death for the accused slave. Only a psychopath could be a part of a system that treated human beings this way without having some grave moral doubts. Europeans involved in the sugar business quieted their doubts by telling themselves stories about the inherent inferiority and barbarism of black people. Some white people who came into contact with 18th century plantation slavery did have the moral clarity to condemn it, but most found it easier to adopt a conception of race that excused the horrors of slavery. By the late 18th century, we can see those attitudes coalescing into a kind of caste system in the New World. A person's role in society and the economy, and their rights and duties, came to be dictated primarily by race. In most parts of the Americas, this separateness would soon be legally codified and enforced by the state. But for most of the 18th century, this racial caste system was still informal, a set of social mores rather than a code of laws. This meant that they had some bend to them. Exceptions could be made, sometimes in very counterintuitive ways. In the French Caribbean, sex was probably the most glaring of these inconsistencies. Most of the French colonists who were building a society on white supremacy had mistresses or wives of African ancestry. Whatever their beliefs on race, they didn't change the fact that there were not very many French women in the colonies, and human beings have needs for sex and companionship. Given the inherent power imbalance in these relationships, it's probably more accurate to think of them as a kind of formalized rape than anything romantic. But unlike in the English-speaking world, most of the offspring of these unions were considered free at birth and they were often accepted as legitimate by their white fathers. Mixed-race sons of planters often inherited their father's estates, becoming slave owners themselves. Boys were often sent to France to receive an education, and sometimes they stayed. That's kind of the archetypal background of a prominent black Frenchman of this era. Joseph Boulogne, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, was probably the most famous black Frenchman of the 18th century. And those were his circumstances. His father was a rich planter on the island of Guadeloupe, 
who sent him to France for his schooling. As a young man, he came to be known as the best swordsman in France, and was sought out as a fencing coach by wealthy noblemen. Saint-Georges had a big personality and a quick wit, and he soon became a fixture at the royal court. He wrote manuals on swordsmanship and developed a system of sparring with blunt swords to teach his students. As dueling died out, that system grew into a recreational sport, the direct ancestor of the fencing matches you can see today in the Olympics. Saint-Georges is often referred to as the father of the sport of fencing. On top of all that, Saint-Georges was also a composer of some note, and was one of the founding fathers of the French abolitionist movement. Saint-Georges supported the revolution, and when the new French Republic went to war, he organized and led a unit of black volunteers to defend it. I think he's one of the most fascinating characters of the age. His undeniable talents led to him being more or less accepted into society as an equal, but not by everyone. Saint-Georges' race remained an issue at every step of that unbelievable career. You sometimes hear excuses for the people who participated in the slave system. Things like, oh, everyone back then was racist, or no one realized how bad slavery was at first. I think it's important to stress that is not true. People from all kinds of racial and social backgrounds spoke out against the rising tide of racial prejudice throughout the 18th century, but they had to struggle to be heard. In Britain and in her American colonies, the Quakers were vehemently opposed to slavery. They boycotted all sugar products, one of the first cases of consumer activism in history. In France, there was a large, active scene of abolitionist writers and thinkers by the late 18th century. In 1770, one of these writers, a man by the name of Reynal, published a book called The History of the Two Indies, which gives an honest, unvarnished account of the crimes of European colonialism, and ends with a rousing, passionate argument for universal human rights. And it was actually a hit. Reynal was one of the most popular thinkers of his generation. Obviously, that's not saying much in an era in which most people were illiterate, but that's a far cry from everyone back then was racist. And of course, it wasn't just white intellectuals like Reynal arguing, arguing against slavery. Memoirs by ex-slaves began to appear in the late 18th century. The most famous of these was by a British abolitionist named Alauda Equiano who had been kidnapped from West Africa as a boy to work on a plantation in the American South. Equiano's book doesn't pull any punches. He was very frank in depicting greed, violence, and rape. So no, not everyone at the time thought slavery was benign. The truth was there for anyone who wanted to see, but abolitionists had to struggle against the money and influence of the slaveholding planters, and against the complacency of a public who generally didn't want to know the truth about where their luxuries came from. Slavery in the French Empire would persist until 1794, when a committed abolitionist came to power, a man who cared much more about his own unshakable moral certitude than any planter's lobby, Maximilien Robespierre. But unfortunately, we'll have to come back to Robespierre another time, I really hate to cut this one short, but I've got a busy schedule this summer, and I need a little time to do Robespierre justice. Anyway, until next time, thanks for listening.
Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. 